0: Let's pray together before we jump into God's Word. Father, would you um, peel away everything that might get in the way of your Word going forth this morning? Whatever it may be, God, it it could be um, technology getting in the way. It could be our minds wandering or roaming, distractions that abound spiritual warfare in our hearts and our minds, whatever it is, God, would you remove these obstacles for a few brief moments that we might hear from you? That your spirit might apply your word to our lives with great ease, with great clarity, with great power and conviction and even joy. Help us, our great shepherd, to hear your voice. To follow your leading. To submit to your word. To enjoy your instruction. Lord, you're asking for our attention in this moment. For just a few minutes out of an entire week. Help us to give it to you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 2 this morning? Colossians 2, verse 6. While you're turning there, let me tell you of um, two great tendencies that have been interwoven and evident throughout all of church history, that every Christian, every church has to face, every generation has to face. I would call them, number one, an ungrounded passion, or, number two, a lifeless orthodoxy. All throughout church history, you find either ungrounded passion, or lifeless orthodoxy. What I mean by ungrounded passion in a church is uh, a very active, very passionate, very lively group of Christians, but also a very ignorant group, ignorant of clear and important biblical truths and instruction. Paul references such people when he talks about his Jewish brethren in Romans chapter 10. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to truth, not according to knowledge. They're passionate about God, passionate about who they think God is, passionate about the things of God, but they're largely ignorant of the truth of God. They don't prioritize the study of the Scriptures. They instead prioritize activity over study. On the other end of the spectrum is lifeless orthodoxy. This is a group of people that are very grounded very grounded in biblical understanding and truth, very confident in their doctrine, firm in their beliefs and convictions, and yet largely void of passion, joy, or activity. Such people like this prioritize as critical the clear explanation of biblical truth as they should, but they then minimize the need to Express passionate faith or emotions, or even minimize the need to be active in ministry. Those are the extremes, uh, one extreme to another, but both problems arise out of a wrong understanding and a wrong application of Christian living as defined by God in the Bible. We are neither to be ungrounded in our passion for God, nor are we to be lifeless in our beliefs about God. We are to be a people grounded in the truths of Scripture, yet so moved by the glories of Christ revealed in Scripture, that we are the most passionate people on earth. The most joy-filled people on earth. The most active people on earth for the glory of God. The church should be putting to shame all other groups and organizations that could ever potentially exist by our passion for the things of Christ, by the joy that we possess in our hearts that just shines forth in our attitudes. The Bible is abundantly clear that our understanding of Scripture is to inform our very living, our very attitudes, our very actions. Jonathan Edwards, whom some regard and I think rightly regarded as the greatest American theologian to ever live, he called this the stirring of our religious affections or our religious emotions. Jonathan Edwards was convinced that if we truly know Christ and are truly convinced of the glories of Christ and are truly born again by Christ, then all of our emotions are put into the service of Christ. We're filled with awe, we're filled with joy, we're filled with love, we're filled with anger against the things against God. We're, we're emotional people because God has stirred our affections. The Bible is also equally clear that our living is to be grounded on our understanding. That our passion is to be built on actual truth, not inventions Or opinions. So we might confidently say anything else outside of that is wrong. Because that's against God's design for the Christian life. The Christian life is to be the passionate life built upon the truths of Scripture. And nothing less. It's wrong in several ways, but practically speaking... It's wrong because if we have passion apart from doctrine, then we flirt with the dangers of idolatry, false teaching, and potentially we neglect a clear presentation of the gospel. On the flip side, if we have all of our doctrine perfectly correct and yet are lifeless or passionless or emotionless, then we're in danger of making Christianity dull, the gospel unattractive, And we're in danger of neglecting our God-given calling to be active in the faith. Neither one, a passionate yet ignorant life or an intelligent yet passionless life, neither one demonstrates the intentions of God's plan for our Christian living. What is God's intention for your Christian life? It is to display the glorious truth of Jesus and the gospel by the way you conduct yourself. That's what Paul is starting to get at in Colossians chapter two, verse six, and verse seven. He's applying all that he's written so far in chapter one and the first part of chapter two. Essentially, he's saying, Out of all that I've said so far, this is how I want you to live. This is the result of what I'm trying to get to uh, with teaching you. I'm I'm laying out all of these uh, lofty theological doctrinal positions and teachings about Christ and the church and yourself and your need for salvation and the sufficiency of Christ and salvation all so that we can come to verse 6 and 7 and say this is how it fleshes out. This is the result of my writing to you. In fact, we might even say Verse six and verse seven. Is the point of the entire letter of Colossians. Our theology, our understanding of the Bible is to inform our lives, and that is exactly what Paul is getting at. What I've said about Christ, I want to be true of you. And here's what he said, and here's what should be true, that your entire life should be lived for the glory of Jesus. You should live under the submission of Jesus. You should live in saturation of Jesus. You should live for the fame and glory of Jesus. Every aspect, every area, every detail of your entire existence, from the depths of your soul, the very depths of your being, to the conduct of your daily life, is to be lived in light of your faith in Jesus. That's Paul's point. Look in verse 6. Let's read verse 6 and 7. Therefore, because of all that I've written so far, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's a major shift in the entire letter here. And we ought to begin this shift where Paul begins it with the most important, clearest point of verse 6. This instruction is for those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord. One must receive Christ Jesus the Lord to live a life that glorifies Him. That's the most basic understanding of the Christian faith. If you're to glorify God at all, you must be born again and forgiven of your sins. If your life is to be submitted to Christ, saturated in Christ, existing for the fame and exaltation of Christ, you must first know Christ in salvation. So the most important basic element here is receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. Let me talk about that word receiving for a moment. It literally means Receiving as in according to tradition. But not the tradition of man. The Christian tradition. As in Christ Jesus being the Lord. That's the Christian tradition that passes from generation to generation. God saves his people through Christ Jesus the Lord. It's a content kind of word. Just as you received this content. It's not, as it has been taken in recent years, it's not a word that conveys to us um, desperation from God. As if God is begging for us to believe Him. Just receive God. He's begging. He's offering. He's he's pleading with you to receive. That's, That's not at all what Paul's talking about. He's talking about receive in the sense of accepting, understanding the content about Christianity. But in the context... He's talking even more than just receiving content. He's talking about receiving the person of Christ himself. He uses the word receive in the terms of a, a personal commitment or personal devotion. Two very important words in the Christian vocabulary. How are you to define your relationship to Christ? Not his relationship to you, but your relationship to him. It should be in terms of personal commitment and devotion. That is what is required. You are to be committed to Christ. I am to be committed to Christ. Above all other things. The Bible even tells us, above our own families. The Bible even goes so far to say, above our own lives, we are to be committed to Christ. We are to be devoted to Him above all other things. Above our dreams our aspirations, our greatest desires, they all take a second back row seat to our devotion to Jesus. Faithfulness to Him, commitment to Him, is what matters the absolute most. If we flip over to Mark's Gospel, in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this, but I'll read Mark's account. Mark Chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus is found defining what it means to follow Him. Calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, this is His method of outreach, this is His evangelism. He says, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. the holy angels. What does it mean to follow Christ? It means complete devotion, total commitment. To the point of denying oneself and taking up their cross. To the point of sacrifice and suffering. All because you have deemed Jesus as worth it. All because you have believed that Christ truly is your greatest treasure, your greatest reward, your greatest delight. Let's be clear and let's be frank. A faith that is not built on personal commitment and total devotion is not saving faith. True saving faith, as defined by Christ and the rest of the New Testament, is a faith that so influences your whole being it results in increasing devotion to God. Increasing commitment to God. Anything short of such wholehearted commitment may not be real salvation. I personally find it hard to conceive of someone who can profess to know Christ and yet not be wholeheartedly committed to Him. And I'm not talking perfection, but I am talking genuine devotion. How can you claim to know the glories of Jesus and taste of the great forgiveness of God and yet your life not be surrendered to Him? I find that to be, in my limited estimation, an absurdity I see the Bible calling us to follow Christ even to the detriment of our own safety or comfort or even our own lives and Paul is reminding these Colossian Christians you've received not just a message not just content about the faith, although that's necessary, you've received a person. And in receiving that person, you've committed yourself to Him. You've devoted yourself to Him. You've united yourself to Him. You've tied yourself off to Him. He is your last hope. He is your only anchor. Well, practically speaking, when he uses this word received, he's also... Calling them to remember. Remember the start of your faith. That would be good for us to do from time to time. Remember when Christ first found you. When Christ first called you. Remember that faith. Remember that commitment. Remember that eagerness. Remember that life. Remember that passion. Remember that joy. Remember that peace. As you received Christ, walk in Him. Remember how you received Christ. Remember the start of your faith. Remember the person of your faith. And remember the content of your faith. That's what Paul's getting at. When he reminds them of whom they have received. Moving on through the verse, the actual emphasis is... On the one that they've received. The structure of the verse says this. The language of the verse says this. The emphasis is on Christ Jesus, the Lord Himself. Specifically, on the word Lord. It's as if Paul is writing and saying, Remember the Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. It's his way of tying back to all that he said about Christ. And what all has he said about Christ in chapter 1? Well, even if we just look at verse 15 or back up even into verse 12 and 13 and 14 or even back up into verse 3 or even back up into verse 1, we find that Jesus is God. The Father is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who possesses the kingdom, it's in Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness. Jesus, verses 15 through, through 20, is the supreme ruler of all things in creation, both visible and invisible. Verses 21 through 23, Jesus is the only sufficient one to reconcile you to the Father. Verses 24 through 29, Jesus is the mystery of God. Verse 28, it's Jesus that we proclaim and warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he repeats himself again it's Jesus who's the mystery of God and the one who will protect you from falsehood. He's reminded us of the supremacy of Christ and the, the sufficiency of Christ and, and the exclusivity of Christ. And, and that's what he's getting at here when he refers to him as the Christ Jesus who is the Lord. Remember whom you have received the sovereign God, the ruler over all things, the glorious and authoritative Christ. That tells us something about our faith. It tells us that when we come to Jesus for salvation, we're not coming to Him just as a Savior, but we're coming to Him as Lord of all things. That when we come to Him, we don't come to Him just for deliverance, but we come to Him even in submission. If we believe all that Paul has said in chapter 1, then the natural outworking of such belief is saying, this is not just my Savior, He is my Lord. He is my God. And as my Lord and as my God, He is the supreme ruler of my whole life. My whole life belongs to Him. All that to say, following Jesus and having saving faith in Christ is far more than just Mere intellectual understanding. And if that were the case, Paul would have stopped after his theological discourse in chapter 1. Our faith is not just academics. Our faith is not just lifeless understanding. Our faith is a faith that, uh, that a person orients his or her whole entire life around. It's a faith that penetrates to every nook and cranny of your entire deep being of your soul. It's a, it's a faith that it infuses and injects itself and fills you up from the very depths of who you are. Let's define faith that way. Something that we have so believed in, that is so true to us, so moving to us, so life-altering to us, that our whole lives are built around it. The way that we... We have friends, the way that we take a test, the the grades that we possess, the careers that we work, the way we we interact with our children or our spouse or our grandchildren, the way we view and exist in retirement, the way that we spend our money, the way that we drive our automobiles, the way we eat our food, is all determined by this one man, Jesus. He has so changed us, so touched us, so saturated us, uh, so consumed us, so transformed us, That the very depths of our souls are built on Him. This is faith. This is saving faith. This is receiving Jesus Christ the Lord. This is being made new. Recognizing the authority of Jesus to stake claim over your entire existence. And joyfully, willfully saying, you have it all. I don't pretend that such a confession is easy. I don't pretend that such a commitment or such a statement is easy. It is not. There's a reason Jesus says deny yourself. That's hard. We are lovers of self. There's a reason Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that I, I see Jesus as my greatest treasure, and so I have suffered the loss of all things. I see, he didn't say, I see Jesus as my greatest treasure, and so I, I easily give up everything. He says, I suffer the loss of everything. It's hard, it's painful, it's not easy, it hurts. It requires sacrifice. It's unnatural. It's like ripping off the worst of band-aids. And yet, worth it. Suffer the loss of all things. Because Christ is worth it. Our understanding, our, our deep study, our verse by verse walking through Scripture is worthless. If it doesn't lead to real transformation that says Jesus is worth it. We can have a perfect theology like the devil himself. And it's worthless. If it doesn't lead us to say with Paul, I suffer the loss of all things and count Jesus as more. More. Verse 6, Paul gets into his first true imperative or true command in the letter. Now, certainly, he's conveyed and implied such commands throughout all of chapter 1 in the first part of chapter 2, no doubt. But with this transition and the practical approach in chapter 2, verse 6, this is his first true command or outworking of all that he's taught, as I've said. It's the application of what he's taught. And this is the summary We are to be Christians not in name only, but in every single area of our lives. Not just in confession, but also in practice. So the first truth of of real Christian living that Paul gives us in verse 6 is walk in Him. You've received the content, you've received the person of Jesus Christ, you're remembering the faith that you've had in Him. So, walk in Him. Live. Walk is a, is a common scriptural example. We find it in both the Old and New Testament quite frequently. And it's meant to convey the life that you're living. Literally, it could be go on living the life that you live in Christ. Continue living in Christ. For those who have received Christ, then you are to continue in Christ. It carries with it an air of perseverance in the faith. Paul has used this word already once before in this letter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He's prayed that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And now, by chapter 2, verse 6, he's instructing us to do so. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in Christ. As I've already said, it means to bring your entire life under the jurisdiction and will of Jesus. Which means, practically speaking, that that we don't compartmentalize our lives. We're not Sunday-only Christians, are we? Every area of our lives belong to God. Every area of our lives are under the jurisdiction and government of Jesus. So our entire thinking, the the thoughts that have come into our minds, they belong to Christ and are uh, to be conformed to Christ. What you think about your worst enemy, what you think about yourself, what you think about your, your spouse, what you think about your friends, what you think about any given thing, is to be conformed to Christ. Our desires, the, the things that we want and long for, our perspectives, how we, how we view the world around us and interpret the world around us. Our behavior, our conduct, our, our attitudes are all to be transformed and informed by Jesus It's a comprehensive faith that you and I are called to. Not a partial faith. There's not a part of our lives that Jesus doesn't have control over. Not one aspect where we aren't to live in light of Christ. Everything, the Bible says, again, even to the way we eat our food, is to be done to the glory of God. That's what Paul means when he tells us to walk. Every aspect of the way you live your life, do it for Jesus. Now, let me before I go on, let me share some implications by, uh, that Paul uses or gives by using this word walk because he uses it as an image-inducing word, term. It's meant to convey some things to us. First, when I think of this word walk, it automatically puts in my mind activity. And we've talked about this recently. Our faith is an active faith. As we go through this life living for Christ, we're to be actively living for Christ. There's nothing about our Christian faith that is idle. Nothing. You and I are not called to exist on the sidelines of of God's kingdom, are we? You and I are not called to be stagnant. In our faith. Our faith is an active faith. Uh, The staff and and I are reading a good book. I think it's a good book. They may think otherwise. You can ask them. It's called The Compelling Community. We're reading a chapter a week. It's written by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. And this week's chapter was um, particularly good for me. I want to read to you just one sentence out of that chapter. He said, One sign that many in your congregation are not saved is how hard you have to work to motivate them. I'd like to read that again. One sign that many in your congregation are not saved is how hard you have to work to motivate them. Why would he make such a statement? I wholeheartedly agree with the statement. Such a statement can be made because we don't belong to an inactive God. And we don't possess an inactive faith. We are to walk. We are to live actively for the glory of Christ. We are to exercise our faith in every area, every compartment, every nook and cranny of our entire lives. Secondly, when I read this word walk, it puts the image in my mind that effort is required. It's not always easy or natural to live a life for God, is it? But also, more than that, there's no such thing as coasting. We don't coast in our Christian faith. And we don't consume and we don't just warm a seat, we put forth effort as we'll see in just a, minute, a little bit, verse 7, um, it is all about spiritual growth. There is no coasting. Effort is required. And thirdly, I've referenced before, perseverance is necessary. There are times, rough patches, where the, where the path is not well worn. It is bumpy. It is rocky. It is even painful and difficult to navigate. Yet we must persevere. Continue living a life for Christ. Therefore, Paul says, based on everything I've written thus far in the letter, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue living your life for Him. Continue persevering for the Supreme Ruler who is Christ. His sovereignty extends to every one of our lives, every area. Of our lives. Before we jump to verse 7, it is important that we say and highlight this. Such a life, a life lived in submission to Christ, a life lived for the glory of Christ, cannot be accomplished by one's own strength. It's important to highlight that Paul says, he doesn't just stop and say, just walk. He says, walk in Him which means Jesus is our strength and our supply. He's not just the one we center our lives around. He's the very source of our existence. He's the very source of our strength. He's the very blood, lifeblood of our faith. You cannot walk with God and glorify Christ with your life if you are not doing so in Him which means meeting with Him, which means studying His Word, which means praying with Him, which means meeting with His body and being encouraged by by fellowship among God's people. It means saturating yourself with Him. You're memorizing Scripture. You're singing godly songs. You're thinking and meditating upon godly things. You're talking about godly things. Your whole life is not just centered around Christ. It is built on Christ. You cannot walk And live the Christian life you are called to live. If you are not doing it with the strength and supply of Jesus. John 15. Attach yourself to the vine. Because Jesus says apart from me you can do nothing. None of us will live the Christian life perfectly on this side of heaven. And none of us will live the Christian life at all if we're not attached to Christ. Our union with Jesus is important. Imperative. Don't let anything get in your way of walking with Christ. Don't let anything rob you of connecting with Jesus often, regularly, consistently, even constantly. Any obstacle that prevents us from being with Jesus needs to be either redirected or removed entirely. That same book, The Compelling Community, the rest of the quote I didn't read to you, so I'll I'll finish the second half of it now. He says, If an attractional ministry has gathered a congregation in name only, Then you will have to manipulate or coerce them into acting like followers of Jesus. You have to put forth effort to make them act like they love Jesus, act like they're following Jesus. But those who are actually tied to Jesus, if they're actually born again followers of Christ, then they will want to serve in Christ's strength, by Christ's will, for Christ's glory. That's who we are to be. Exist as people who serve as a clear example and picture of the glories and lordship of Jesus by letting Him reign supreme over everything in our lives. That's our calling. Very quickly, let's tackle verse 7. Not only are we to live in Christ and for Christ, but we're to grow in Christ. Paul focuses on two areas in which that happens. If you'll notice in verse 7, he uses these um, words that really go in good sequence together. uh, Rooted and built up, but he first says rooted and built up in him. And then the third word he says established, but it's established in the faith. And he means two different things by that. When he uses that phrase in him, he is referring to the person of Jesus. When he uses the phrase in him. The faith, he's referring to the content of the Christian faith. And he's first telling us to be rooted in Christ. Rooted in Him. It's plant terminology. We know that. And it carries the idea of your roots going down deep. Searching. Working. Not instantly, but steadily. Mining the depths, searching for food and nourishment and sustenance. We also know that the inverse of this is true. If roots are removed, a plant will not live. A plant's life is based on its root system. I have an ongoing war with gophers and moles in my yard. And it is never ending. I have, set on the porch with a gun... But Jamie does not like that. And so I resort mostly to smoke and fire and water. Part of my problem with gophers is not just that they tear up my grass and make my yard uneven. But most importantly to me, they eat the roots of my plants. And when they do, the plants are dead. There's no hope. Now, sometimes I don't know when they eat the roots of my plants until springtime when a certain plant stops blooming because it'll stay standing up. It'll look like it's alive. It'll look like a plant, but really it has no roots. It's entirely dead. Sometimes I catch them in the act and there's still one root left and I can nourish that plant back to life. I can protect it and I can cultivate it and I can care for it and I can pay special attention to it and it'll reestablish roots as long as it has a little bit of life in it and it'll come back. But if I catch the plant where all of its roots are annihilated and destroyed and in the belly of some evil gopher, then that plant is dead and gone because plants get their life from their roots. We are to be rooted in Christ. I understand Paul's analogy. It makes sense to me. If I remove my roots from Christ, if I try to be rooted in anything else, maybe a gravel pit or the sidewalk or, or some other place I shouldn't be and my roots don't go very deep, I die. The scorching heat of persecution suffocates me or the harsh winter of, of callousness in my heart prevents me from going growing. Christ talks about that in a very famous parable. My spiritual growth and my life for Christ is entirely dependent upon my root system. Am I grounded in Jesus? You and I are to be growing spiritually. We are to glorify Christ with our lives. But our lives and our faith are not stagnant. They change. They're ever changing. And our faith, our spiritual growth should constantly be increasing. Our roots should be going down deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus. Trying as, as vainly as it may be. Trying to mine the very depths of our Savior. The deeper we go, the richer the food. The re- deeper we go, the richer the... The nutrients, the sustenance, the deeper we go, the more firmly we're established, the stronger we become, the more grounded we exist. I get Paul's analogy. He goes on and he progresses in verse 7. He says, Be rooted in him, but also be built up in him. That's a construction term, it means to mature in Jesus. Don't build your foundation on shifting sand. Don't build your life on things that are temporary. Don't build your life on something that will burn away in the end. Build yourself on Christ. Well, rooted is a prerequisite for the other two, because if you're not rooted in Christ, you certainly won't be built up in Him. But if you're rooted in Him, you can build yourself up in Him. And there will be times in your life where you'll be building, growing, and then a block or two will fall. But Christ nourishes the roots and protects and cultivates and cares, and we continue building. We continue progressing in our faith. We continue maturing in our faith. We continue growing in our delight of and understanding of and and pleasure of Jesus. Don't stop growing. For heaven's sake, don't stop growing. Don't be stagnant. Don't let demonic gophers come at your roots. Don't let your leaves wither and waste. All of that is in the person Jesus. It carries a relational element to it, a dependent element to it. Be relational and dependent upon Jesus and and dive deep into Him. Dive deep into Him with prayer and and build up on Him. Find your confidence in Him, your life in Him, so that you would be even established in verse 7. Established in the faith. Notice he says, just as you were taught. That's because he's referring to your understanding of Christ. You and I have to be established. We're not getting to it this morning, but verse 8, look at his, look at his fear. He's already referenced it several times in the letter, but his fear is, uh, I don't want anyone to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That, that's what I want to avoid. And so what's the antidote to that? What's the answer? Well, we looked at it last week. It's Jesus. But also, in verse 7, it's being established in the faith. Unmovable, grounded, sure in what you believe, convinced. Biblical illiteracy is not an option. We have to know the Scriptures. We have to be faithful in the church's opportunities to grow together, to study together. We have to be faithful to do so in our own daily lives. And when we struggle, we have to be faithful to seek the help. We must be people established in the faith. Jude writes his little letter to combat false teaching and false teachers. And the point of his whole letter is to contend for the faith. You and I can't contend for the faith if we're not established in the faith. We can't grow in the faith if we're not established in the faith. Established in our conviction and understanding of Christ. Preaching time is not just something we do. Bible study as a church is not just something we do to try to, I don't know, have fellowship or or this, that, or the other. It's critical. It's the difference between truth and falsehood, life and death. Preachers labor to communicate God's Word because it is a matter of life and death. Be established in the faith convinced of Christ that you may continue pushing your roots down deeper, building your life on that solid rock. So we are to walk in Him, which means live, continue living in Him. We're to grow in Him. We're not stagnant, stale, or anything like that. Our, our faith is active and flourishing if it's in Christ. Finally, Uh, Real Christian living entails glorifying Him. And we find that phrase at the end of verse 7. Abounding in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, gratitude, it's a hallmark of the Christian. Because what does it do? It confesses that whatever good you have is not of your own doing. I'm not thankful to myself for my own accomplishments. I'm thankful to one who has given me something I don't deserve. Thankfulness implies a gift Thankfulness implies the inability to accomplish something. So thankfulness confesses God's greatness over yourself. And it confesses God's glory. Thankfulness is one of the chief ways in which we praise God. And notice what Paul says. What's the natural result and outflow of all this, this doctrine of Christ that I've been writing It's a continued persevering life, lived for Him, spiritual growth, and an abounding in thanksgiving. That's why people who rightly understand their Bible and rightly walk with God are not emotionless, passionless people. That's why lifeless orthodoxy is an oxymoron. Orthodoxy means correct understanding, accuracy. If we correctly understand the Scriptures, there's no such thing as lifelessness in us. We abound in thanksgiving, which manifests itself in all sorts of passionate praise. We're confessing that this life I live and the spiritual growth I experience is all by God's goodness to me, His grace, not of my own accord. So many people wonder what they're supposed to do with their lives. I get that. I sometimes do too. Here's a good general picture. Continue living for Christ by the strength that He supplies. Grow in Christ. By pushing your roots down deep, building yourself on on Him and being established in the faith, and abound in thanksgiving, glorifying Christ. That's what you and I are called to do. All of that to come back and say, you cannot do any of that if you have not first again received Christ. If you have not had your sins forgiven. If you're not new inside. If your heart's not regenerated. If you're not born again you're not born again you're not going to walk in him you're not going to submit your entire life to him your life's not going to be lived for his glory you're not going to grow spiritually you're dead spiritually and you have nothing to be thankful for A few common graces of god but you don't know true thanksgiving you first need to examine the faith that you claim to possess are you christian in name only or christian in Faith in life. And if you are, if you genuinely have received Christ Jesus the Lord, then strive. Let's strive together to walk in Him, to grow in Him, to glorify Him. It's a great adventure, a great privilege, a joyous calling, and one which we will not regret on this side or that side of heaven.